morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Have you ever cheated when you're playing a game? I'm not trying to out anybody here, you know, for public confession, but you ever stack the deck playing cards or anything? I remember my cousin and I did that to my brothers. We killed them that game too, by the way. Um, You've ever arranged the Scrabble pieces where you know where certain letters are or anything like that? I remember uh, when Rachel and I met, we were in college and there were these guys that lived next door to her and her roommate, Jill. And what these guys like to do for a while is at 3.30 in the afternoon, they would you know, come knock on Rachel and Jill's door and barge in and watch Jeopardy in these girls' dorm room and try to wow them with how they knew like every answer in Jeopardy, like they were geniuses or something. And Turns out what they were doing is these guys would watch the three o'clock episode as it aired in their dorm, in their room. Then they would go next door and watch the same episode of Jeopardy on a different channel and try to impress Rachel and Jill with how smart they were geniuses. All right. They needed something else to do is what they, is what they needed. But, you know, just like when, if, if you cheat at a game, if you cheat at Jeopardy, What you're trying to do is sort of lower that bar to where it can seem like I'm winning without having to be good enough to actually win. I just want other people to think I was good enough to win. And the reason I bring that up is that's a little bit like what the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day tried to do with God's law and, and morality. What they, what they did, the Pharisees and scribes, is they, they, had, they had taken God's law and made an interpretation of it where they came up with, a, with a, a list of rules they knew they could keep. And they tried to pass that off as if that was God's standards of righteousness. So they made these rules that set a bar of righteousness they knew they could get over. Then they kept those rules they knew they could keep. And then they declared themselves righteous for keeping rules they knew ahead of time they could keep. Now, it wasn't really God's interpretation of the law. It was just a, it was just a kind of self righteousness they were they were just putting the bar where they knew they could be successful and then claiming to be good now most people if we're honest most of us in one way or another we tend to do that here's what i mean we tend to have 
standards of righteousness that we that we're kind of good at naturally that we don't struggle with and we really major on those and we get really bent out of shape at the people who struggle with those that I don't struggle with and then we sort of ignore ones that we do struggle with or we make excuses for the ones we struggle with or we you know I, I have to treat that person like that because let me tell you what they're like or you know our government is so wicked that's why I cheat on my taxes or you know on and on and on we have lots of reasons why we set a bar where we know we can get over it and I don't know if we declare ourselves righteous, but we think we're pretty good guys, pretty good gals, because I don't do this terrible thing, I don't do that terrible thing. That's what Jesus is hammering away at, where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount. This idea that we can set a, a, a standard of righteousness where we get over, where we think acceptability lies, and then declare ourselves to be okay. By the way, a little side note here. Someday we'll go through the book of Romans and when we get to chapter 2, you know what God says? <laughs> I think the major point of Romans chapter 2 is even if God judged us, he doesn't. But even if God only used our own standards to judge us, to judge us we would still fall short of righteousness because we still get mad at people for breaking standards that we break ourselves. But I digress. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount just blasts away at setting a bar of righteousness that we get over and saying, look, I'm a pretty good person because I don't do this, I don't do that. Look how much better I am than so-and-so. Like our standards are God's standards. He, He wants us to see how high the bar of God's righteousness really is. He started that in the Beatitudes, which by themselves blast away at this kind of self-righteousness. The Beatitudes, if you weren't here at the beginning of chapter 5, there's those blessed are those sayings that are so famous that Jesus said. Just Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon of all time, by saying blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Which means I understand if I'm poor in spirit, I'm destitute before God. I'm not clearing any bar that he thinks makes me good, righteous. When, when I do that, I'm not poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are those who mourn their spiritual condition. If I think I'm getting over this bar that's God's bar, I'm not poor in spirit. We go through the whole Beatitudes and find the same thing. But where we're at right now is Jesus... One of the second of six things Jesus takes where he says, I'll bet I know where you put your bar of righteousness. And let me show you where God's bar is really at so that you can see how far short you fall of the real bar. And Jesus, even though it's probably new for his audience, he's not teaching anything new because he's just sharing the heart. that What was God's heart? For the Old Testament law all along. Last week, he used murder. Jesus said, you've heard it said to the people of old, you shall not murder. It's like Jesus is saying, I'll bet when you think of your standards of what's right and what's wrong, like not killing people is probably, 
you know, one of your, one of your bars. And Jesus said, I want you to think just because you've kept yourself from killing someone that God thinks you're good. God finds you acceptable. Jesus said, God cares about what's in your heart. So if you're carrying around with any of the ingredients of a murder, that long-standing, simmering anger, that bitterness, that hate, jealousy, envy, those things that, at the worst-case scenario, become murder, if those things are carried around in your heart, you're already falling short of where God's bar is at. And today, as we heard John read a minute ago, Jesus is going to move from carrying around hate, bitterness, anger, the ingredients of murder, to talking about the ingredients of adultery. In verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her or looks at her lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's, it's like Jesus is saying this. I'll bet, no matter what your standards are for sexuality, not committing adultery is on, is on your standards. And everyone has standards for sex. Everyone. Somebody's standards, I mean, with who it's okay to have sex with, the marital status of the person, um, the, uh, the age of the person, how many people what species, right, of being we're talking about. I mean, you, the most decrepit people got standards somehow. Jesus, I'll bet one of yours is, if you are married, you shouldn't sleep with someone that you're not married to. Or you shouldn't sleep with someone who's married to another person. I'll bet that's one of your standards. And he says, I just don't want you to think that if you can keep yourself from getting across that line, that you're righteous. That you're keeping this one of the, tenth command, of the Ten Commandments. Now, before we really dig in to this passage, uh, I've had plenty of disclaimer, but I know this involves a topic that's really, most of us would just soon not talk about. I think there's really uh, three kinds of people or three problems, three reasons people have a problem with this. And, and, and I'll, I'll bet we're all somewhere in one of these things. Three reasons why you really don't want to hear this. And I really don't want to say it at some level. The first one is some of you, this topic hurts at a very personal and deep uh, level and talking about this might make you feel ostracized, demonized, re-victimized. Um, praise God that there is, there is not one single sin that you cannot find forgiveness and restoration and cleanness. In Christ. Um, somebody else might not want to hear this because there's this feeling that 
the biblical ideals. I don't want to hear about what the Bible says about sex because it's so, it's so old-fashioned. It is, it's out of date. Nobody can really do that. It's repressive. It is, you know, a lot of people think, you know, the Bible says you know, sex is dirty and it's wrong. And, it's, and so I, I really don't want to hear that. Nobody can really live by that. So don't, just don't come at me, bro, with that, with that stuff. Um, I, like I can't be happy, whole, content, and take the Bible's uh, ideals for sexuality as mine. That those two are mutually exclusive. There's that idea. And then the rest of us might have, don't want to hear this because there's just this feeling that, like I know it's in the Bible, but this is inappropriate. <laughs> like if I, if we were honest, there's, uh, there's some of us in here this morning that are going like, we shouldn't really be talking about this. Uh, I want to collect all four colors of my Bible highlighter and head for the exit because this is not to be talked about here. But listen, I mean, obviously Jesus talked about sexuality. He talked about it openly. He talked about it repeatedly. The, the apostles talked about this repeatedly. And it's important. You know, it's one reason I like going, just taking a book and going verse by verse through a book of the Bible uh, two reasons. One, I never have to think about what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, this book will cut you. And if we just take a book and go through this, I can't avoid passages maybe I would avoid due to my own discomfort. Also, you, it takes this away from you. I bet he picked that just because he didn't like me and he knows I was in his office and I talked to him about something. No, I mean, we're just going to go through this verse by verse. Now, I think the reason... Let me back up for a second. Before we dive into this, I think we have to understand what the biblical ideal for sex is. Um, sex is not dirty. It does not induce shame of itself. Uh, it was God's idea. God invented it. And just like everything else God created, he created it good. But also just like everything else God created, because God created it, he gets to say what the proper use of it is. And when it is used, when sex is used how God created it to be used, there is no shame. There is no guilt. Even though it can feel like if I limit my standards for sexuality only to what the Bible says, I'll spend a lifetime being, you know, miserable and repressed and sad and 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 whatever else. The reason it is easy to feel like that is, and I'm going to steal Tim Keller's uh, words to describe this because I, just because I like it. I think it explains it really well. Is It is really easy. It's really natural. I want to say today, in this day and age, 
but it's always been this way. It's really easy to have a consumer-based idea uh, of sex. To treat sex as, as I treat anything else as a consumer. When I am a consumer, and this is Tim, this is Tim Keller's example, when I'm a consumer, I am, I'm looking for something, products out there. I'm looking for a car, for a cell phone, for a whatever else. As a consumer, I'm looking for something because I have a desire that, that something else can meet. Uh, it might be a real need. It might just be a want. But as a consumer, I'm just looking for what can satisfy my needs, my wants, my desires. And we all know how this goes. I find something for a little bit, I buy it, I get it, and it feels really good. And then the new kind of wears off, and I'm always looking for an upgrade. Because there's probably something that will meet this need, meet this want, this desire better than what I currently have. Now, I'm going to tell you what you already know about that. I I understand that viewing sex that way, I have needs, I have wants, I have desires, and if I just found the right thing to meet that, I'll somehow be more content. Worldwide, pastors, counselors, uh, rabbis, imams, psychiatrists, and whoever else people go to for help, their offices are full of folks who are coming in there because they're dealing with the reality that what I thought was going to uh, bring me contentment and happiness and, and whatever else turns out is ruining my life and has caused me great pain. Anytime we approach sex like a consumer, as something to meet my needs and desires, we are off of the of the path that leads to fulfillment and we're, we're outside of the, what God created it for because God created sex to be covenant-based rather than consumer-based. It is true what you have heard. <laughs> the, according to the scriptures, according to the Bible, according to what, how God revealed sexuality to work because he created it, the only allowable sexual activity is, takes place inside a marriage covenant between one man and one woman. That's, that's true. And that is very narrow by our standards for how sometimes we think this should work. But God didn't create those narrow standards for sex because he's mean, because he doesn't want you to be, have fun or be excited or, or have contentment. He, God just knew this, this thing he had created, sex was so powerful, that that's the only safe place to use it. It's the only place it doesn't cause shame, guilt, hurt. In a, in a covenant relationship, you have two people. In a marriage covenant, you have two people that have fully given themselves to one thing. And sex is supposed to be a picture of the marriage covenant. Two people completely given to one another. 
not two people seeing what they can take from one another. In a, in a covenant relationship, my desires are less important than the, than the covenant. The covenant is more important than my desires. In a consumer-based relationship, my desires set the course of the relationship. I need this. I've got to have this. And, I'll, and if I can't get it here, I'll find it someplace else. That's being a consumer. And not a covenanter. And when we, when we pursue sex like a consumer, we train ourselves to be on the lookout for an upgrade, for a better, better model, for something that will give me um, more of what I think I want or need. When the only place it was designed to work is in the safety of a covenant where I'm, where I'm accepted um, and where the... the the covenant's more important than individual desires. Now, with all of that said, like this third longest introduction in sermon history, I think we're ready to see why Jesus ups the ante on sexual integrity from what most people in his day, where they thought the bar was. Verses 27, 28, again, Jesus says, You heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her, and that's really the, and most of our translations say lustfully or with lust, but it's just the word desire, right? They've already committed adultery. They already have adultery in their heart. Now, Jesus doesn't do away with the adultery command. Still a very bad idea, according to God. That's very important to understand. He's not saying having these thoughts, dwelling on these things, is the exact same thing as full-on physical adultery. He doesn't say that. If that were true, then this dangerous line of thinking would be okay. Well, I've already done it in my heart, so... No. Uh, Richard Gardner, in his commentary on Matthew that I'm reading as I study these things, he wrote this, Adultery doesn't begin in the neighbor's bedroom. It begins in the cravings in one's heart. See, nobody ever accidentally committed adultery. Right? I mean, that's just not like, oh, I, just, I don't know what happened. I didn't mean to. Like, that's the, it's the last step in a very long path that someone got on a long time ago. And that path is what Jesus wants us to consider. And I'm convinced it is the consumer-based path. Treating sex as a consumer treats watches and phones and cars and whatever else. Getting on that path the end of that path is adultery. Whether I can get, keep myself from going that far or not is not the issue. Jesus wants us to see stepping on that path is the problem. It's where the problem starts. Here's how he, he shows us this. Verse 27 starts, but I tell you. He says, anyone who looks at a woman. Here's why this is so, that word is so interesting. Adultery, by definition, can only be committed by 
with a married person, right? To commit adultery, either you have to be married or the other person has to be married and not married to each other. Jesus said, listen, I want anyone can commit adultery in their heart, even if they're not married. Now, on the face level, that's not true. But here's what Jesus is saying. Anyone who gets on that consumer-driven path is planting the seeds that sprout and control and eventually lead to, someday, in many cases, adultery. Jesus has taken us back to the very beginning of the wrong path. And it starts with a look. It's that look, and it's not the word for just a, a glance, right? Um, for a continual, considering look. When I begin as a man, in this case, to look at a woman or women in general, uh, in a way, lustfully, which just means to desire, to have, to use, to possess. Jesus, if, you started, if you've started that, you are on the path that leads to adultery. And that path is what he wants us to consider. As soon as we, we begin that, it's a sinful, it's a sinful path. Jesus says, I don't want you to think if you're even on this path, as long as I can keep myself from crossing this line, and I don't care where you put the line. Adultery, you know, this kind of touching, this kind of activity, this kind of whatever. Jesus says, no, stop drawing the line there. The line is in here. Are you a consumer of sex or are you a covenanter? And Jesus uses probably the most common example, and that's why he uses this, men looking at, at women. But it isn't, the, it isn't the only example he could have used. Any thoughts, any actions that feed a consumer-based sexuality or consumer-based relationship ideas where my needs are greater than the covenant, my marriage covenant, those are wrong. They, they feed these adultery seeds. They plant and nourish adultery seeds that Jesus wants us to get rid of in our hearts. It's, it's, I don't care that you can keep yourself from crossing some line. Why do you want to walk around with that in your heart? Right? Man looking at a woman, the prevalent example. Guys, this is why pornography is dangerous. Because basically nothing builds that consumer-based drive in your sexuality more than, than porn. That's what builds that up into this feeling that if I don't get what I need, what I want, i got to get some, go someplace else, do something else to try and satisfy, satisfy this. It's like lifting weights for consumer-based sexuality. But it's not the only example Jesus could have given. Um, gals, I'll pick on you for a second. Here's what I think prevalent consumer-based thoughts uh, from a more feminine persuasion would be. Um, 
imagining, picturing a spouse who is more caring, romantic, handsome, rich than the one I've got. Because if I go to the logical conclusion of those things I just listed, the end of that would be someone who can meet my needs, fulfill my desires better than the one I'm in this covenant with. And all of these things. See, when I do that, when I, begin, when I compare my spouse to some improved, perfected, different model. And it doesn't matter if those improvements or perfections are physical or in their desires or in the amount of money they make or how in their emotions or whatever it is. Before long, my heart will begin to say, I would be happier with a different model. I would be more content if I wasn't with this model. And all of these things are sin, Jesus says. And sin always costs what? Death. And you remember what death is. Death is a separation. It lets coldness, separation, uh, grudges, wedges into my covenant. I shouldn't be there. I begin to kill my spouse in my heart, kill my marriage in my heart, because there's no way I can remain content or happy and be faithful to God's ideals for my marriage and my sexuality. And now I want to pick on you if you're not even married yet. Because Jesus says, anyone. You know, you can be faithful to a marriage covenant before you're in one. You absolutely can. All right, since most of the young ones are out of the room, real talk. You're like, holy cow, the real talk hadn't started yet? (laughs) Holy smokes. Uh, Young people, you know why premarital sexual activity is dangerous? It's adultery and training. You are, you are training yourself to look for a newer model. Something to meet your... You are training that your physical needs are more important than a marriage covenant that you're not in yet. A marriage covenant says, this is the safe place for this to happen. I'm so I'm completely given to you before I'm, I'm physically given to you. The other way of doing that, here's how it usually works. Hey, I'm thinking about maybe committing, giving all of myself to you, but you're going to have to give that physical part of me to you first. And then I'll decide later whether or not I want to give the rest of me to you. It's like a test drive, an audition. It's a job interview. But I'll spend the rest of my life without some help, without cleaning some of this up, thinking I'm in a constant audition, a constant job interview, because I know we are both trained 
to look for a different model. I won him, I won her by putting physical desires over this covenant we are in. So I better keep pretending. I better keep auditioning. Now, Jesus knew using relationships and sex selfishly like this um, as a consumer is dangerous. That's why he encouraged us in rather strong language um, to take um, drastic steps to protect ourselves. Verses 29 and 30, Jesus said this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members, one of your body parts, than to have your whole body thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better excuse me, to lose one body part than to have your whole body go into hell. Now, what Jesus says here is not to be taken literally. Okay? Please do not go home and start this process. Um, It's not to be taken literally. How do I know? Well, let me ask you this. Can a one-eyed guy still look at someone with lust? Yes. What if he gouged that eye out? Could he still have heart problems with lust? Yes. Can a one-armed guy still grab something, steal something, take something he shouldn't? Yes. Jesus is not suggesting there is an outward fix to an inward problem. In fact, he might be poking fun at the Pharisees even by saying this. He might be saying this. Hey, since all you guys are interested in is this outward obedience, if all it takes to get into my kingdom is outward obedience, why don't you just cut your arms and legs off and gouge your eyes out and you're in for sure? And you think about this. If that, if, if that was all that was necessary, maybe the most loving thing you could do to your child when he or she is born is do a quadruple amputation, gouge their eyes out, and then they'd be in for sure. Eternal life, guaranteed. Uh, not what the Lord is saying. Because your eyes and your hands don't cause you to sin, your heart does. Your inner self does. Because we're broken. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying in language anybody can understand, God takes sin very seriously. God takes sexual sin very seriously. So seriously, even though God, for God so loved the whole world, People who don't come to Christ are going to spend eternity in hell. That's how serious God is about sin. And if God's that serious about sin, should we be willing to take some less drastic measures to keep some of it out of our hearts? Like that stuff, the sexual sin we carry around our hearts and our mind is like like the stuff of hell in our hearts. That's supposed to be Jesus' territory. Jesus, why don't you protect your heart from some of these things? And he knows a consumer-driven mindset for sex won't get us there. You know, here's how the Bible, another way the Bible teaches this. Guys, because it's mostly the guy problem, you know 
Human male sexuality is completely insatiable. You understand that? The idea that if I just got what I want, when I wanted it, from who I wanted, I wouldn't feel like this. I'd be content. I'd be whatever. Lies. You know, I know I won't do it this morning. I thought about it. We'll go to Ecclesiastes. A guy named Solomon writes this book. And he got married. And eh, that wasn't quite enough. So he got married again. And I still not quite enough. And he got married again and again. And he got to where he had a hundred wives. And that wasn't enough. He got to where he had 200 wives. Still wasn't satisfied. This dude had 700 wives. And still got taken down by sexual sin. The, the, that... The point of that part of Ecclesiastes is if you think by getting what you want, when you want, from who you want is going to make you not have drives and urges in these areas, trust me, it ain't happening. And you don't even want to know what the alimony payments are when you have 700 wives. You got to see the size of the minivan that guy drove. So, what do we do? First of all, it can be sexually speaking in any other area. If you are looking to marry someone or if you did marry someone because you wanted um, all your needs and your desires and your dreams to be met, you're going to crush that person with your expectations because that is above their pay grade. You are married to a broken person. A covenant, a marriage covenant is where two people give themselves to one thing with an understanding that the only one who can meet my needs, I am part of his bride, but I'm not married to him here. So what actions, actions should we take in this area? The first action is not an action. The, the problems in the heart, the solution starts in the heart. Here's the first action I, we must take in this area. First, I've got to choose. I've got to decide. I've got to commit uh, to taking the biblical standards, God's standards for sexuality as outlined in the Bible as, as my standards. This is what I'm going to try to live my life by sexually. Am I going to fail? Yes. But until I decide these are my standards, I won't recognize when I'm on the wrong path. I've got a million excuses. For why it's really not that big a deal, and everyone's doing it, and nobody can really do this. Until I decide these are my standards, how can I expect to, have, to be right in this side, biblically before God? I have to decide that. You know... God is not the giant fun sucker in the sky. He doesn't give us these rules and these parameters because he doesn't like us and he doesn't want us to be happy and he doesn't want us to be excited. He's saying, I know the way life works. This way to joy. This way over here to wholeness and contentment. I know what is best for you, child. 
until I take him at his word and decides those are the standards I want to live by. None of the rest of this will work. I'll just try to keep myself from crossing some line out there in the horizon someplace. And by the time I even get close to it, I will be 42 sinful things down the road. Then, after I do number one, number two, then I have to take some precautions to protect my heart. I have to uh, pay attention to what I, what I feed my, my heart, my mind, the sexual area. Does it, does it feed consumerism when it comes to sexuality? Or does it feed covenantism? Is this good to build my desires or is this good to build my marriage? How do I do that? Um, where do you come into contact with the stuff that feeds that consumerism? You've got to be honest with yourself. See, if you don't do number one first, you won't do number two. I'll just oh, I'll be all right. I can handle this. I'm not going to go to a certain... Nope, you're on the wrong path, Jesus says. So, so where do I come into contact with the stuff that feeds consumerism? Is it on my TV and my Netflix, Netflix account? Maybe that's why I need to gouge out in some way. Is it on the internet? Um, when I was in seminary, I had a professor say, uh, when you set up your, your office... You point your computer screen toward your door or your window so that, so that you know somebody could go come into there. Now, they didn't have this. The church also has a thing called covenant eyes. Here's the way this works. I am free on my computer or on my phone to go anywhere I want on the worldwide interweb. But I know two people are going to get a list of every site I visited that week. And it's going to flag certain things so that they can come to me, and they do, and say, "Listen, here's here's a flag I got." Now, it, I mean, it's not an annoying filter thing. I don't know if you've ever had one of those, like that shuts your computer down every time you look up a recipe for chicken breasts, right? <laughs> it's not. It's not that. But that strangely was not in my notes. Um, the uh, sorry, but. I was, I was being serious. Come on, we were at the good part. Listen, the church has this. There's a bunch of us, several of us on this. I do not have to get your report. If you want to be on that thing, you let me know. The church will pay for it. The elders said a long time ago, I can't imagine a better thing to spend the church's money on this. You can have somebody else uh, be your accountability partner in that. That's one way. Third, you just have to, again, if after you've done number one, you have to just look, be on the lookout for consumerism in your desires. Is this, do, I, do I really want what's best for my marriage, my covenant? Or is this just about me? If you're not married yet, you can be committed to your covenant before you're married. Am I, if, if I am, before I'm married, just bent on my desires more than they're this more important than my future marriage. Don't think that's just going to flip once you get married. Your heart doesn't look like doesn't work like that. 
Fourth, commit. You commit that you are going to be a giver, a giver, an investor to your covenant. I know it feels like I can't give myself to this person. I can't give anymore because I'm operating in deficit because I won't get back. That's consumerism. Commit to being a giver. Now listen, sometimes that doesn't mean just be permissive because sometimes the, most, the best thing I can do for my marriage covenant is have a very difficult conversation. Sometimes that is the giving that needs to be done. And then fifth, I would say, don't play with this stuff. Uh, Confess it, repent of it. Like I mentioned um, earlier in our time this morning, there, there there is no sin that is too black, too dark, that you cannot find healing, restoration, forgiveness of. When I say don't play with this stuff, I don't mean simply, I'm going to try from here on out to do better. It is going into my heart and dealing with the stuff that I, that's already been in there that I've already done and taking that to the Lord and saying, this, this, what I did, violated your standards for my sexuality. I'm asking for your forgiveness. I'm asking that you take back that part of my heart I gave away to consumerism and heal that. I want my heart to be used in this area of my life for your Holy Spirit so that I can be a giver in my covenant. And then the repentance of some of these difficult things, some of these eye-gouging, hand-sawing things that I may have to do to guard my heart. Make sense? Would you bow with me and pray? Father God, uh, every time I open your word and begin to study, I'm amazed with how alive and how real and how current and how contemporary your word is. Just in any culture, in any time, for any people, uh, Lord, there, there's just no chance that, that this message uh, isn't needed in some of our hearts. But God, we need to first decide we're going to let your standards be ours. We're going to believe you that wholeness and contentment and joy is outlined in your word for us. God, uh, I just pray you would impress on me and my family and friends here of where we need to protect ourselves. Give us the guts, the courage, the strength to do that whether it is you know with accountability on our computer or having an accountability partner that will ask me about my thoughts and what I'm comparing my spouse to and things like that and now God I'm just going to be quiet and go sit down and let uh, Stephanie play for just a minute um, so we could have some time just to confess what we might need to confess this morning And I thank you that you promised in 1 John, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. I just want to give you some time. Have a quiet moment with your Lord.